0: Hello, America, and happy Wednesday. Great show ahead of us. We've got two really extraordinary guests. First out of the box, the man who slayed one of the Democratic giants in the midterm elections, Michael Lawler, Republican congressman-elect from the state of New York. He took down Sean Patrick Maloney, the DCCC chair, one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, unexpectedly ousted on election night in New York. Michael Lawler is going to tell us how he did that, what lessons he learned, and what lessons the Republican Party can learn about capturing swing districts. Democratic or independent-leaning districts, how Republicans go about changing it. We're going to have a great conversation with him. And then we're going to talk about a story that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It might sound like gobbledygook at first when you hear it, but it's not. You know why? At the end of the day, it is about a regulatory move that will ultimately come and take money out of your pocketbook, your wallet, out of your budget. The social cost of carbon. It's an obscure concept that the Democrats have pursued since 2009 under Barack Obama. That cost estimate just got quadrupled. You heard me right. Fourfold increase without much explanation. And we're going to tell you why that matters. And our second guest is going to break it down to you. are going to take it to your pocketbook, your wallet. Tim Stewart, the president of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, will join us in the second half of the show. And we'll talk about all of the Biden energy policies, but we'll really focus on the social costs of carbon calculation, which just came out of nowhere, got slipped out in a little tiny document at the back end of a new regulation. But its consequences are wide reaching, including for the cost of reparations that Joe Biden in the overseas climate conference promised the United States would play reparations someday to poor countries for pollution we created. Well, this social cost of carbon would be a dollar figure that would be used in those calculations. It also will affect things like tailpipe emission regulations and methane regulations, all of these on products that you and I use to drive our cars, power our grills, heat our homes. And it means that when the industry takes this new cost on, it's going to get passed on to you. And we're going to talk about that with Tim Stewart, who really knows how to break that stuff down. But let me tell you a little bit more about this pretty extraordinary development. It's one of those things that Just hasn't gotten much attention in the media, but it has profound, profound impact. And, you know, we've been talking about everything for the cost of gasoline and food soaring in America. So inflated price tags aren't, at first blush, that's surprising right now, right? We're in an inflated economy, a lot of concerns about it. But even by Washington standards, what happened at the EPA earlier this month is, well, a sticker shock shocker, because there was a nearly fourfold increase in the government calculation of damages from what they believe carbon emissions cause and damage to the environment. This has been a figure invented by the Obama administration in 2009 called the social cost of carbon. And what it does is it sets a price per metric ton of carbon released into the environment, what its actual damage cost is. And for most of the time since 2009, it has stood under Democratic presidents, including Biden, at $51 per metric ton of released carbon. Donald Trump took that down, I think, to a dollar because he didn't believe in the calculation, but it got back up to 51 under Joe Biden. But in mid-November, EPA put out a new methane rule. And in an attached document to the methane rule, they suddenly said, well, it's no longer $51. We've redone the math. And it's $190 Per metric ton, nearly fourfold increases. If you use 2022 $20, dollars, and oh, by the way, it's gonna keep growing, it will be four hundred and ten dollars by the year 2080. Talk about inflation, 51 to $410. That is it. And see, a lot of people think, well, this is just government alphabet soup agencies doing hypothetical things that don't matter to me, but it's not true. It's gonna affect everything from the cost of the new methane regulations that were released last week to tailpipe emissions to the future payment of climate reparations that Biden mentioned at the COP27 COP27 carbon conference where he committed the United States to pay poor countries climate damages for our industrial pollution I'll figure that one out now there is a lot as you heard yesterday from the Louisiana solicitor general in the courts on this Louisiana is challenging the Biden administration's Social cost of carbon rulemaking. And now with this price being nearly quadrupled, that case takes on a lot greater significance. But today, what we're going to do in the second half of the show is Tim Stewart's going to come and he's going to break it down. What is it going to cost you when this social cost of carbon, which by the way is going to work for many years before it gets fully implemented. What is it going to do and how much will it price gas and oil and coal and other products out of the marketplace? or make it so unaffordable that it becomes a burden for everyday Americans? That's the question we're going to focus on with Tim Stewart in the second half of the show. All right, so we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Michael Lawler, Congressman-elect from Republican, one of the shock winners in the 2022 midterm elections, a Republican who ousted one of the most high-ranking Democrats in all of Congress, and then Tim Stewart from the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, back-to-back. But before we get to that, it's always good. To have a reminder that we have on a daily basis great partners that make special offers available for our listeners, for our readers, for our viewers here at Just the News, Just the News, No Noise, and of course, John Solomon Reports. So one of the new sponsors is Man Crates. I love these guys. They have hundreds of totally unique gift options available for all the special men in your life. For the rest of the season, you can buy one crate and get one 50% off with the code FESTIVE50 at mancrates.com. So use the code FESTIVE50, FESTIVE50, F-E-S-T-I-V-E, 50 at mancrates.com. They have hundreds of totally unique gift options available at mancrates.com. Mancrates packs his gift in unique containers, so watching that man in your life open his gift is an unforgettable experience. Personalization comes free, and every Mancrates gift comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. He'll think it's awesome, or Mancrates will make it right. Now, for the rest of the season, buy one, get one 50% off with the code FESTIVE50 at mancrates.com. One more time. Use the code FESTIVE50 at mancraze.com. Take advantage of this incredible offer. Great gifts made specifically for men over the holiday season. Go check it out, folks. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to start off with Michael Lawler, the congressman-elect from New York, right after these commercial messages. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower kidneys and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens, All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. In the midst of the midterm elections, there were some major surprises, and no place was more surprising than the performance of Republicans in New York State. And our next guest, well, he slayed one of the giants of the Democratic Party. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney was the DCCC chair. He was considered to be an incredibly safe Democrat, but not when Mike Waller Republican from New York, ran against him. He defeated Maloney, shocked the world, and now is the new congressman-elect from the state of New York. And he's joining us right now. Congressman-elect, great to have you on. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. It's an amazing story, what you pulled off. And I think there are a lot of lessons that when Republicans look at the Republican Party of New York and your campaign, how they can go about winning elections in in this sort of modern way that votes are cast. What do you think is the biggest takeaway for the Republican Party and the way you went about beating Maloney and the way other colleagues of yours also won seats for the first time in New York?
1: Well, New York uh, had a great year, obviously. We're going to be sending 11 members of Congress. Uh, to Washington come January. We flipped four seats. uh, And as you mentioned, I defeated uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the DCCC. And there were a number of factors uh, that played a a significant role. Number one, obviously, redistricting. uh, The Democrats uh, got very greedy. You know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And uh, they tried to gerrymander New York's congressional map and, and knock Republicans down to four seats out of 26, uh, and a Democrat-appointed court of appeals uh, intervened and threw out the maps, ruled them unconstitutional, appointed a special master, and drew a fair set of maps. And that map uh, created, you know, a a level playing field and a real opportunity here. Uh, And so when those maps came out, I I took one look at it and decided, you know, I'm going to run. I can win that seat. The district that I ran in is the immediate suburbs of New York City. It's home to Bill and Hillary Clinton and George Soros. Um, and, you know, I'm coming from Rockland County, uh, which is two to one Democratic in enrollment. Um, but it's blue collar, working class. There's a large Orthodox Jewish community that lives there, a lot of law enforcement, first responders, uh, veterans. Uh, and so I knew that if I could get 10 percent, uh, win Rockland by 10 points, that I would be in a very good position to flip this seat. And, you know, we did it by sticking to the issues that matter to voters, regardless of their political party, uh, and specifically the cost of living and crime uh, and parental choice with respect to education and securing our border and tackling the fentanyl crisis, uh, killing 300 Americans a day. Uh, and and dealing with energy uh, policy, which has certainly uh, driven up, uh, you know, home heating costs, gas prices, and grocery prices. And so, you know, that was the focus of my messaging, and I never deviated from it. And Maloney uh, really, uh, you know, was totally at a a step with uh, the district. Um, You know, this is a district that only 25% he currently represents. And so, Uh, 75% of the district was new for him. Uh, I represent about 20% in the state assembly. And so he didn't have that built-in advantage of incumbency, uh, which really put me, you know, in in a good position. Uh, And we had strong support uh, nationally. You know, Kevin McCarthy and uh, the NRCC and CLF uh, came in uh, with a a combined about $10 million of support. I raised $1.5 million. uh, And we really You know, caught them by surprise, frankly, Uh, but I was out there working every day doing six, seven, eight events a day, barnstorming the district, uh, talking to to voters in every community. Uh, This is a D plus three district. Joe Biden won it by 10 points. Um, You got to show up. You got to talk to voters in every community. You have to ask them for their support and you have to campaign on issues that cut across uh, party line, especially in these tough districts. It's the only way we're going to have a majority and a go, and a lasting majority uh, going forward. And and so you know I think if there's any lessons to be learned uh, nationally, uh, obviously candidates matter, message matters, um, but you you have to you have to build the coalition to get to 50 plus one. And you're not going to do it by talking about issues that that frankly the middle uh, either doesn't care about or. Uh, totally disagrees with you on.
0: When I talked to some people the day after your win, and a lot of people said to me, substance matters. And Congressman-elect Lawler really showed that. That's what people were telling me, that getting out there and talking about what the issues of the substance that matter, what they call the magic middle. And a lot of people looked at you and said, listen, that was a substantive campaign. He had a provision for everything, whether it was empowering parents, making energy more affordable, public safety, the environment, veterans. That substance-based campaign, it seems like Republicans always do best when they win on the issues first. Do you think that that concept is picking up? I mean, a lot of focus in politics the last 20 years has been on celebrity. It always seems the Republicans' best victories come when there is a focus on substance and issues. Do you think that message resonates now among the party rank and file?
1: Well, the reality for most of these swing districts is that we're outnumbered in terms of enrollment. And The only way to appeal to Democrats and to independents is on substance and on what you're going to do to address these challenges. Um, And I think, you know, where we have erred um, is, you know, in trying to uh, just run personality uh, based campaigns. Um, You need personality and you need an ability to connect with voters. Uh, For sure. Uh, But you need to have substance behind it. And I think what we saw on election night and I I would argue part of the reason that maybe we didn't do as as well as people anticipated um, is because in some of these uh, swing states and tough uh, districts, we had terrible statewide candidates uh, who were not running on messages that appealed to a broader coalition, uh, but spoke only to the base. Uh, and looked backwards as opposed to looking forward. And I think, you know, as as the party moves forward, as uh, we kind of uh, look back on this election and what went right, what went wrong, uh, I think we need to take a, a, a hard look at, you know, how we are recruiting candidates, what our message is, and how we're building those necessary coalitions uh, and appealing to a, a broad diverse a coalition of voters uh, to win in these tough races.
0: Yeah, that's the key thing. You got to get to 50.1 and building that coalition is, I think, an art that some Republicans have lost. I think they've gone into the easy way of, ah, we'll just put a big personality out there and see what it attracts. But coalition building is still the way elections are won
1: victories mean nothing. That's right. You, you, have, you have to get to 50 plus. Right?
0: Yep. Any sports player knows that only the top score wins. And so that's a key part. You've done an awful lot. And I think yesterday there was another moment. I think Republicans have struggled with what to do about the episode that occurred at Mar-a-Lago with Nick Fuentes. You didn't mince words; just that you came right out on Twitter and said, hey, there's no room in the Republican party for a guy like this. Tell us a little bit about that message. And do you think more Republicans are going to have the courage to come out and Say it.
1: Look, if we want to build a majority uh, and a governing majority, and if we want to enact the policies that we know will work, uh, we've seen them work, um, we have to show the American people that we are serious, uh, that we're fair, um, and that we respect uh, the American people. I mean, it's that simple. And, you know, entertaining or sitting, uh, for, for dinner, uh, with, you know, anti-Semites or racists, uh, it's unacceptable. Uh, and there needs to be, a, a very clear, um, denunciation of it. And I, and I think, uh, you know, going forward, uh, there are folks in the party that really need to take a hard look at what they're doing, how they're doing it. Uh, and frankly, who they are engaging with, um, because it, it does not serve the country well. It does not serve the party well. Uh, and it does not serve uh, the American people well, uh, to, to entertain this type of, uh, ideology or, or conduct. Uh, and I, for one, uh, have no tolerance for it and, uh, and won't be uh shy about denouncing it when when it occurs
0: and i think a lot of the majority of americans are right where you are at and i think appreciated the comments all right so you showed your district when you you won the substance and the issues that you were going to make a difference in washington now republicans have an opportunity with a slim majority but they've got the majority what do you think is the most important steps that the house republican caucus can take early on to send a statement? to the American public, we heard you, we know what you need done, this is what we're doing to make a difference. What do you think are some of the early priorities?
1: Well, listen, a, a majority is a majority and uh, we have a, a opportunity to govern um, and I think we need to uh, enact uh, the agenda that we ran on. You know, the, the commitment to America uh, was uh, a, a broad based approach uh, to the challenges that we are dealing with, whether we're talking about economic security, national security, parental choice and rights when it comes to uh, the children's education, energy policy, securing our border. Uh, these are the issues that we ran on and that we got elected on. And I think we need to do everything within our uh, power as a majority uh, to enact that agenda. Um You know, I am willing and able, as I have in a state legislature, to work uh, across the aisle and and get things done um, because the reality is the Democrats control the Senate and the White House, and if we want to enact uh, these policies we 're going to need to to build support um, but for sure, uh you know right off the bat we 're going to be able to stop. Uh, a lot of the bad policies that have been act enacted under one party rule, uh, over the last two years. So, you know, that obviously, uh, is critical. Um, but we gotta, we gotta govern and we gotta deliver, uh, for the American people. And that is my objective. And I think, uh, you know, we, we need to obviously keep, uh, our majority, uh, and keep 222 members. Uh, you know, working in the same direction and, and, and enacting these policies. And I think that's where we should focus our efforts.
0: You've had a chance to go through the early orientation. What is the first few days of that look like? And what do you take the sentiments of your colleagues in the Republican caucus about their determination to meet that mission you just described?
1: Well, listen, it's been a great opportunity uh, to meet my colleagues and start building those relationships. Uh, you know, one thing that I did uh, pretty successfully as a member of the state legislature was build personal relationships with every member uh, of the New York State Assembly, uh, regardless of party or, or geography uh, or ideology, because you you have to find area of agreement and compromise. And frankly, you've you got to understand uh, that politics is not personal. Uh, we all come to it with different ideas, uh, you know, different backgrounds that shape our point of view. Um, doesn't make me right and them wrong. Uh, but it's a function of how, how do you bridge those divides? How do you build coalitions? How do you get support for the agenda that you want to see passed? And so, you know, orientation has been a, a good start to that. And, uh, you know, trying to, to forge those relationships uh, as, as we move forward.
0: Well, the country knows we have a lot of big issues to tackle in the next couple of years, and they're going to be watching closely with this new class. But your record and what you pulled off in New York has been just marveled by so many people. And I think the wisdom that you bring from that race and now bring into Washington is going to make a big difference as we try to get some progress in a city that often likes status quo being stuck in the mud. And so it's going to be fun to watch you in, in first action, sir.
1: I appreciate it and uh, look forward to, uh, to the opportunity to serve come January.
0: Yep, we're going to be watching real closely. Thanks for joining us today. Great conversation. Thanks, John. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Oil and Gas Association and a thing called the Social Cost of Carbon. It just got quadrupled. A lot of people don't know that. We're going to explain why in just a few moments right after these messages. <music>
2: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Always excited to have this next guest on. He makes sense of the very important world of energy and energy policy. A lot of things we hear in Washington sound like gobbledygook, ABC Alphabet agency stuff, but all of it... Ultimately comes back to hit you in your pocketbook. When government takes action, it ultimately affects you. And that's one of the things we're going to tackle today with our next guest, Tim Stewart, the president of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association. Tim, great to have you back on the show. John, it's great to be with you. You're a great American. I appreciate you having me on. Well, it's a great honor and our audience loves you because we get down to brass tacks. We hear all of these things and Washington, ESG, and now the latest one, social cost of carbon. And they sound like hypothetical exercises by bureaucrats with green shades. But at the end of the day, there is a significant impact downstream to regular America. And this social cost of carbon thing really caught my attention just before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving the Biden administration took a figure of what they believe the impact of carbon emitted into the atmosphere costs. It used to be $51 for more than a decade. It's been set at $51. Trump bumped it down, but it then went back up to 51. And they quadrupled it to $190. Tell us what was going on there.
3: Yeah, you know, there's there's no such thing as sort of a, a federal agency, just sort of back of the enveloping figures. There's always a reason behind it. And frankly, John, they they're trying to implement that that uh, green agenda, whether or not the Americans want it, whether or not Congress wants it. But during COP27, you know, it was just concluded a couple of days ago. The administration really, frankly, wanted to pimp out their work on climate. No better way to say it. They just wanted to show look out look what we're doing. So in the middle of that, EPA rolled out a, a, a new draft methane rule for the oil and gas industry in particular. Okay, and buried in a 120-page supplemental appendix was a recalculation of the regulatory uh, calculation for how um, how the federal agencies would begin to price the, the the social cost of carbon. The social cost of carbon is an estimate on the on the impact of the climate change damages caused by emitting one ton of carbon dioxide. and when the Obama administration was in it was, it was in office, they in, uh, instituted an interagency Working group to sort of coordinate that, and they they landed on a a, a level of fifty one dollars. The Trump administration came back in and said no, that's they, they recalculated and they said it's really actually between one and seven dollars per per ton of, of and that's what the cost is. Uh, this administration has since, in in a Thanksgiving weekend dump of uh, of information, has come in now and they estimate the cost between one hundred twenty and three hundred forty dollars in damages per per ton of carbon dioxide. I mean, that's ridiculously high. And so th- th- it's basically tripling in, in six years. It's ridiculous. But it also, also goes show how malleable the calculations are to help them balance out the high cost of their own rulemaking.
0: Yeah, it, it's just stunning. And when they assign this cost, what happens downstream is that when regulations are put into place, this cost will eventually be implemented into a regulation, whether it's a tailpipe emission regulation or a methane regulation. And when those costs get sent to the industry, they're imposed on the industry, ultimately it's going to come back to the consumer, right? The ultimate person who pays this tax is going to be the consumer. Is that correct?
3: Exactly. And, and to show you how out of whack these social cost of carbon estimates are in these new ones, again, I mentioned that, that their absolute high level would be $340 a ton. That's a tax of 200, it's a, a $2.99 per gallon on gasoline. That's ultimately well, an addition to what's already there. That's $3.47 per gallon of diesel. And um, in other words, EPA is saying you're causing $3 in damages for every gallon of gasoline you use. And these estimates are, frank. look, they're detached from reality. But then again, so are the vast majority of the Biden administration's energy policy. One thing to point out, John, four years ago, the the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for Economics, a guy named William Nordhaus, uh, he won the the prize for his work on social cost of carbon and, and climate economics. And now EPA is already placing less emphasis on his model because it doesn't produce high enough numbers for climate damages. That's that's where they're at
0: right now. Wow. Amazing. So they just keep playing with the math until they get it to somewhere where they want it to be. It's all discretionary. It looks to be science, but it's really math, right? You're trying to reach a discretionary number. One of the things that occurred at that COP27 climate conference was Joe Biden committed the United States to pay poor countries, reparations for the climate damage that the United States may have imposed on them, this cost of social carbon figure will actually be used, that could be used to calculate how much we pay in damages to other people. Is that correct?
3: Oh, well, it is. And essentially, you know, it's 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 paying damages, but it's also the administration, both the Obama administration and the Biden administration uh, follow the same philosophical approach, which is to make... Thought the use of fossil fuels too expensive to either find and and, and extract and or to use at the uh, end at the consumer level. They just want to make it too expensive for us to do it. And so you know, it they don't care, frankly, um, if uh, an added cost of gasoline is anywhere from you know a dollar seventy one to two ninety nine, because what that does is that allows them to make the case that it's a, it's more economical. To, to move into a, an electric vehicle scenario. You know, for, for coal, for example, the generation of electricity, that carbon tax is $300 or $320 a ton. That makes coal plants un, uneconomic. And so for them, it's just how do we push this out of the way? And if we can add reparations and or payments to foreign countries as part of that to make ourselves more, more virtuous, they want to do that. But the reality is, John, is we're basically paying those poor, com- those in developing nations, not to use fossil fuels. We're paying them to stay poor because fossil fuels is essentially what adds uh, adds value to any economy and, and increases the 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 standard of living. So we're paying, using reparations to pay other nations to remain poor, which is really lousy foreign policy
0: as well. Yeah, it sure is. And that doesn't end up well for either side of that equation. And so it's a head scratcher. There's another head scratcher that I think a lot of people have been talking about saying, and I know a lot of people direct messaged me on Twitter or on social media and said, what is going on here? All right. So we shut down the Trans Canada pipeline. We made it difficult to get permits for any of the leases and to allow for drilling on our own lands and in our own waters. But the Biden administration last week approved Chevron resuming Venezuelan oil production. Tell us why we would turn to Venezuelan oil when we couldn't be doing our own. And isn't Venezuelan oil a lot dirtier than American-produced oil? Well, it is. It is actually
3: probably some of the dirtiest oil produced globally. And, you know, I, I, may, I may have mentioned this to you a couple of days ago. You wouldn't need to be lifting sanctions on Venezuela if you hadn't kicked the Canadians to the curb on day one of your administration. For whatever reason, the administration views some oil as good and some as bad. You know, uh, and in this particular case, they told the Canadians, we don't like your heavy crude. It's bad. But, uh, you know, 377 days, there's, you know, how many days later it is from their administration, they decide that Venezuelan heavy crude is good. Venezuela is an OPEC member, John, and at one time they produced 3 million barrels a day. The Marxists, take, the Marxists took over, and U.S. sanctions followed, and the Western producers fled, and that production dropped down to 700,000 barrels a day. And Chevron is that one company that remained. They remained in Venezuela because they'd been there longer than anybody. they have been there 100 years. they have been there since 1920. They know those formations. They know those oil fields better than anybody. But they'd been sidelined on their own projects uh, because they insisted on upholding the sanctions, and the Russians and the Chinese moved in. I think it made sense for them to hold on to that stake instead of surrendering them to the Russian and the Chinese. But now they're in a situation where, where um, uh, they, Chevron is that one company who, with the Western experience who can figure out how to actually increase production. And so it's a very complicated thing. But the reality is, is we're essentially uh, propping up a Marxist regime rather than turning to our own resources and to our, our close allies to the North of Canadians.
0: Yeah, it's a head-scratcher. And I think when this announcement was made, the Biden administration said, well, this will help ease the market right away. But Chevron CEO Mike Worth said, hey, this is going to take months and years to really get these oil fields up and going. So even the way it was sold isn't really backed by the facts. This is going to take some time for those fields to even get cranked back up. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, it really is. I think Mike was exactly right. The fact of the matter is Venezuela needs the Western companies and their expertise back in, and it will take billions of new investment from everyone, not just Chevron. And it's going to take a heck of a lot longer than six months. They've got to bring the oil field services companies back in. But there's this this risk, I think. Chevron's a great company. They're one of the best, I think we have to say, but they're caught in the crosshairs here. I think any U.S. company is at risk in becoming, frankly, a useful prop to be used by Maduro to bring billions of investment back into Venezuela. And if he has no intention of holding up his end of the bargain, then then the administration has been played again. And so, again, I think Chevron is caught in the crosshairs here just because it happened to be the last Western company standing there. But look, you know, this is a regime that uh, as as. exploited his people, as people, has it kept them in poverty and as multiple human rights abuses. And here we are negotiating with a, essentially a Marxist dictator. Again, this it just is discombobulated energy policy by this administration.
0: Yeah, everybody scratches their head when they hear these things. And there is really no great answer back from the Biden administration other than this is what we're doing. So live with it. Republicans take over the House in a few weeks. Is there anything a GOP-led House can do in the next two years to try to ease the pressure on gas prices and also the shortages in diesel fuel, which I think long-term are going to be one of the great devastating effects on the economy. Everything from harvest to supply chain relies on diesel. Anything the House can do to perhaps ease the pain for Americans.
3: Uh, you know, I've been in Washington 30 years, John. I've seen and I've either worked on the Hill or outside on virtually every single configuration that you can have between a Democrat House, Republican Senate, or Republican administration, et cetera. I think the biggest thing that a GOP controlled house can do, even though the margins very narrow, is they can actually they can be the sobering yin to the raging yang of the administration. It forces the administration to to consider another point of view from legislative perspective forces the media to begin to talk about it as well administration's not had the luxury or had the luxury of not having to do that and so the house can control the purse strings and it can restrict or squeeze out potential regulations rulemaking just by simply not allowing them to be funded you know that 20 years ago as the chief of staff on the house committee we put in an annual prohibition of spending on funds to make certain rules and those, those, uh, those prohibitions are re-upped every year after 20 years. And so those rules never come to fruition. That's the one thing that, uh, that a, a, a Republican House can do. So I think they can sort of add a, a sobering measure. And then there's all the, the oversight uh, situation as well. But diesel, you know, you mentioned diesel. That is just a, 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 an exact, a perfect example of, of policy gone off the rails. The U.S. Northeast is that epicenter with diesel and inventories, heating oil inventories at their lowest level. And that is because we have uh, so we've lost so much refining capacity due to really bad economic policy. The number of refiners on the East Coast has been halved in the last 15 years. I think we just got seven operating now. And so that's why you see these regional uh, diesel shortages, which have huge impact. And it doesn't help when elected officials keep saying that refiner's days are numbered. You know, it's you know, refining is a capital intensive, intensive uh business and it's tough to make multi-billion dollar investments when government's telling you they're going to you're going to go out of business so it's again it's a, we need a, a better energy policy i think the republicans in the house can sort of add an additional voice to that energy policy now that they are in the majority
0: and sometimes just the oversight hearings will turn up some unusual things like why did they do the venezuela deal what really happened with trans canada what were the discussions behind the scenes so we may learn that's some of the stories that we originally told in the american public aren't the real reasons why the biden administration took that and sometimes the power of shame could be good yeah and
3: john you're the best in the business on on sort of pointing out some some inconsistencies that people discount at first and then frankly are to be true months later. I think it's the same situation. Social cost of carbon is gonna be a really good example. You know, it'd be interesting to have the House Republicans sit down and, and say to the EPA, yeah, okay, show me your math. Show me how your math actually works and force them to do that. So uh that's going to be one of the advantages of holding at least one of the gavels holding one of the houses.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. We're going to learn a lot in that. Uh, sometimes knowledge is power in Washington, so we'll have to see. Last question, we've got methane regulations coming out this week. A lot of concern that this will add to the mix. Obviously, the social cost of carbon calculation was slipped into that. But Tell us what these methane emissions regulations could potentially do to the marketplace
3: well you know it's uh, we knew this was coming um in particular because uh, in the in, in the inflation reduction act they levied this is the, the irony in this whole thing they had levied a fee on us producers for methane um and that that collection begins in january 20 it's 13 months from now january 2024 but the data collection needs to begin in 2023 and so frankly they're going to try and and uh, figure out how much methane is actually being uh uh emitted from the industry, but there's a great deal of of argument as to does that happen just when a valve is open or does that happen constantly? So they're more than happy to levy a fee without actually having the real data in place. But I think the methane emissions rule that the BLM in particular put out last week was was their effort to begin playing in this larger methane emissions charge. It's a mess, John. I mean, really the mess for industry. The bottom line is you never, you never levy a fee or a tax that is not passed down to the consumer. And so it's right to call it a natural gas tax. And, um, the IRA just levied a, a new natural gas tax of ultimately it's going to start at $900 per metric ton of methane and finish at $1,500 in 2026. So it's almost going to double in, in four years. Um, and that's going to be, I, we got to call it what it is, which is a natural gas tax.
0: Yeah, and every consumer will eventually see it on the bottom line of their bill, which is something that's going to be bad news for all of us. Tim, real quickly, how do people follow all the good work? You do such amazing stuff. It's such an amazing resource, the U.S. Oil and Gas Association. What's the best way for people to stay engaged with your group?
3: Well, I appreciate that. You know, um, we're we're pretty low key. I, probably Twitter is the best way to follow us. We're we're pretty irreverent on Twitter. But uh, and and just stay close. Every time I have a chance to talk to you, is a really good opportunity as well. You can follow us, U.S. Oil and Gas Association, on Twitter, and uh, we're we're pretty responsive if people have questions or something like that. We're happy to to reach out and give them what they need. So and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. You've been really really helpful in helping us sort of give the uh, the alternative viewpoint that the rest of the media won't let us have
0: yeah we need all sides in order to make an informed decision and a lot of suppression has been going on but we love that listen it's such an amazing resource the association all of its data you learn so many things and you're like oh i didn't know that about the gas industry it's fascinating oil so we're always grateful for these conversations as well tim thanks so much It's great being with you thanks john you as well sir all right folks we're gonna take a quick commercial break we'll be right back after these messages
2: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. So grateful you can join us. So grateful for the two guests in that really important conversation about social cost of carbon. I love the U.S. Oil and Gas Association and Tim for what he is able to do. He breaks down these esoteric things, alphabet soup and takes it to the kitchen table, to the family budget. And I think that's so important. We in journalism have to do more of that. Big thank you to Tim Stewart for doing that and making the social cost of carbon tangible for all of us. And of course, Michael Lawler insights on how Republicans can win swing districts, how they can get to 50.1% of the vote no matter where you are in the country some really interesting pressure thoughts there and remember we've got that special offer from mancrates.com i really love this this is really a big deal so from now until the end of the holiday season if you use the code festive50 festive f e s t i v e the number 50 50 you're going to get 50% off the second purchase of a mancrates so you buy one mancrates you get the second one at 50% off Take advantage of that Festive50 at mancrates.com, one of the great sources of unique novelty gifts for men this holiday season. All right, that wraps it up, folks. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, God bless you, and God bless this incredible country. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite.
2: of every story but this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program i interview a diverse range of guests including business leaders entertainers musicians educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.